Yeah. See the light? It's not yeah. blinking anymore. Beautiful. All right. Well, good morning. Welcome. So glad to be able to be together to get today. Um, I think uh, I'm the reason why our soundboard is down last week, making such a big deal out of us addressing one another, singing to each other in song, and hearing each other's voices. And I think that's exactly what we had the opportunity of doing and will do uh, before we wrap up. Uh, also, I'm sorry that I'm going to be projecting a lot, and so if you're in the first couple of rows, it may be SeaWorld, Gallagher concert, kind of, a, kind of a moment. Sorry for that. Also dating myself, Gallagher, who even... Anyway, that being said, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to begin with verse 21, and we're going to go uh, to the end of the chapter. As we continue on seeing how the gospel is to shape our lives, how we live them out, we start to see that show up in some important social relationships in our lives, in our homes, our marriages, our homes, our work, and so forth. And so we're going to be looking at that in these next few weeks. Let's tackle it together, starting at verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's a weighty passage. So let's pray. God, we come before you today. We're thankful that we can sing and pray and hear your word, and we pray that you do a good work in our hearts, that you would help us as we think and wrestle with this passage and all that it is conveying to us. How would you do a good work in us? We pray to your glory and to our good. In Christ's name, amen. Marriage is what brings us together today. Okay. That blessed arrangement, the dream within a dream, love, true love, will follow you forever, so treasure your love. 
Apparently my notes got out. <laughs> but in all seriousness, marriage is a gift. It is to be treasured. It is to be treasured to the glory of God and to the good of each other. We're going to wrestle with that today. We want to wrestle with it in light of where we have been in Ephesians chapter 5. We want to see how we can go about looking carefully how we walk out our faith, our lives in marriage. And we want to see how the gospel impacts our marriages, our idea of marriage, that we see all that come together. And as we see this picture of gospel marriages, my hope is that we would want to embrace the significance of marriage. And as we embrace the significance of marriage, that we would have hearts that are eager and equipped and enabled to enjoy the sweetness of marriage. So we want to embrace its significance and enjoy its sweetness. It's all part of God's design for it. So let's wrestle with that together today, this morning. First, let's consider embracing the significance of marriage. Embracing the significance of marriage. And we have some things that we need to do, some groundwork we need to put down in order to gain what is being said in this passage. So there's a, a three sort of very crucially important aspects that we are to keep in mind from the context as then we talk about marriage. The first aspect that's important from context is that we don't lose sight of this grammar structure of the passage. What's going on? What Paul is doing in applying the gospel to how we live out our lives. Last week, we looked at the two ways in which we are to live or to walk in light of the gospel. First was that we would be a people who walk wisely. Looking at verse 15 of chapter 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So that's one important thing that's going on right now in the context of our passage, that we are to walk as wise. We're also to walk filled, filled with the Spirit. In verse 18, it says that um, we are not to be drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. When we talk about those four ways in which, we, four indicators of in which we know that we're being filled with the Spirit, that the Spirit is doing work in us, helping us to, to be more and more Christ-like, we see there in the rest of that passage that the four things that we are uh, said of walking filled are addressing one another with songs and making melody to the Lord and giving thanks to God and then lastly, submitting to one another. So that's all going on right now in our passage. This is how we are to live out our lives, to look carefully how we live, walking wisely, walking filled. And among the things of walking filled, it says submitting to one another. Verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That idea then leads into the next three passages that talk about three social relationships 
in which we live that out. Husband, wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. This section of wives and husbands and children and parents and slaves and masters isn't a separate idea, but a continuation flowing from what Paul said previous to it, especially verse 21. And verse 21 served as the umbrella thought going into those three social relationships. It's mutual submission. It's voluntary submission. It's intentional submission to one another. And what is that? What is this submitting to one another? Well, submitting is this. It's ordering and aligning our lives to something bigger than ourselves for the good of others and the glory of God. This idea is ordering and aligning our lives to something bigger than ourselves for the good of others and the glory of God. That's what is unfolding in Paul's letter to the churches in the region of the city of Ephesus. He's encouraging them, instructing them, exhorting them to walk wisely, to walk filled in the Spirit, to submit to one another, and that idea of that life ordered and aligned to the gospel, embracing the things that God has called us to and to be, shows up to us seeing that this is something way bigger than ourselves, and that our ordering and aligning is actually to the good of other people, as we see in these social relationships, and to the glory of God. So that's going on. We need to keep that in mind. Can't take away the passage from that context of the grammar in which this, art, this, this thought process is being played out by the Apostle Paul. The second thing that's going on is a, a literary structure, and that is Paul does something artistic. He, he's writing in a very important way, and he brings in something called household codes. Household codes. These are instructions given to the core societal relationships. Broadly, in Paul's day, it was very common to have volumes of household codes. They would be huge volumes with lots of very specific details on how to primarily be a husband, a father, and a master. So Paul is using something that would be commonly known, a, a literary structure, these household codes, to show how the gospel brings transformation in the living out of our lives in these important social relationships. But he does it in a way that turns them a little bit on the head in comparison to the rest of the culture. Paul is less detailed, not this massive volume that you would find in Paul's day. He's more principled. He's talking about this big picture of how it shows up in our lives. And Paul is shockingly inclusive as he writes directly to those in a more vulnerable position of those social relationships, wives, children, and slaves. And we have to ask ourselves, why is Paul willing to cut against the grain? Why is he willing to go upstream against the cultural surroundings? Well, there are three very important reasons for that. Reason number one is because the gospel makes no such limits. All kinds of people 
from all kinds of places are being saved from their sin and restored right with God. Awesome and amazing. And in fact, we see Paul focus so heavily on that in this letter to Ephesians. Earlier in chapter 1, he says uh, in verses 13 and 14, In him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. All kinds of people from all kinds of places were hearing and receiving and believing and inheriting all that God had promised in the gospel. No one was barred from that. So the gospel puts no limits. And so Paul speaks broadly in these social relationships. Second reason why Paul was willing to go upstream against the culture of his day was because the church then is made up of those all kinds of people. The people gathering in the churches in the region of Ephesus, hearing this letter read to them and expounded to them, were going to be all kinds of people from all kinds of places. Women and children and slaves and husbands and fathers and and uh, masters, all of them gathered together, hearing and receiving, and it is through that church, made up of all kinds of people from all kinds of places, trusting in Jesus, God is showing off, showing off his grace, showing off the power in his, of his reach. We've referenced it a number of times, but Ephesians 3.10 says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God showing off the breadth and depth and width and reach of his gospel through the church. The church was a radically upstream against the grain, bursting in of the kingdom in Paul's day. The kingdom of God bursting forward in the culture of a Greco-Roman world. Third reason why Paul was willing to cut upstream is because then the Spirit is at work in all of those redeemed people in the church. We considered last week the same wide stripe of people were hearing those words in Ephesians 5, 19, 21, addressing one another. No qualification. Just one another. All of them in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul is writing to these critically important social relationships, but he's doing so a little bit different than the culture around him. We can't lose sight of that. So this foundation that we need to have as we come into this passage is, one, we can't lose sight of the grammar structure, can't lose sight of the household codes, and we can't lose sight of the cultural context of Paul's day. Which is really a way of saying we can't immediately read up this passage and jump into our day and our dynamic without first thinking through what would this mean to the original people hearing this, wrestling with it. What was going on in their day? Well, first, let's, what's going on in our day? I want to share just a few stats about things that are happening in our day. The average lifespan today for an American woman 
is 80.2 years of, of, of life. 80.2. The average lifespan for an American man is 74 and a half. It's a long life. 80 years, 74 years. The median age then for those who are getting married in our day and age. Well, first, let's get a little bit of a context for our day and age. In 1950, a woman got married at the age of 20 and a half, and a man got married at the age of 24. In 1999, the year I got married, a woman's average age was 25, and a man's average age was just under 27 at 26.9. In 2021, the most recent data that I was able to find, a woman is getting married at age 28.6, and a man is getting married at age 30.4. Okay? Keep those numbers in mind, please. What about birth rates? What's birth rates? Well, right now, today, in our day, we are in the midst of the lowest ever recorded birth rate in the United States history. A birth rate means the amount of births per woman in her childbearing years. And right now, it's 1.64 births per woman. Never been that low in our nation. And then lastly, just as a way of getting our context for our day, people get married for a variety of reasons, but many of them are relational or preferential. They're choosing it. Rather than a utilitarian or pragmatic reason. So thoughts and experiences of marriage today are going to differ drastically to the original audience that Paul's writing. So let's consider Paul's day. In Paul's day, the average lifespan for a woman was late 20s to early 30s, and the average lifespan for a man was late 30s to early 40s. Childbearing was a life-threatening event every single time for the woman. And most women died, when they died young, died from anemia-related health issues. What about the median age of marriage in Paul's day? Women married between the ages of 12 and 17, so around 14. Men married in the ages between 18 and 30. Birth rates. What about birth rates in Paul's day? But we don't know precisely, other than if a wife made it to the age of 28, when women are getting married today, she most likely would have four or five kids, and her oldest would be making her a grandmother relatively soon. Grandmothers, in Paul's day, were in their 30s. And people married for utilitarian and pragmatic reasons, for survival, based on arrangement. Marriages were commonly arranged. So those household codes, why they were so detailed, is because this was such a vulnerable and unsettling experience to get married. Many of those household codes would instruct husbands how, how to learn how to tolerate their wives. An interaction that captures the day in which Paul is writing to would be a conversation between two men that would go like this. Who knows the most intimate things of your life? Well, my wife does. Who do you interact with the least in your life? Well, my wife. 
This is a different situation that Paul is writing to than the ones that we are looking at now. So we must be careful to not project upon what Paul is doing here. The things that we find in our day and age, we take principles and bring them from Scripture to bear on our lives and our understanding of marriage. It's important for us to do, to be careful with. And as we do that, we see as we embrace the significance of marriage, we find that it is indeed a mystery. And I don't mean that as a joke. There's a mystery to marriage. And the mystery is this. Marriage is actually modeled after something. Marriage is modeled after and is therefore to reflect the nature of Jesus' relationship with the church. It's modeled after and therefore to reflect the nature of Jesus' relationship with the church. Let's look at verses 31 and 32 again from Ephesians 5. Verse 31 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In these two verses, we find both creation and gospel shaping our understanding of marriage. Both creation and gospel shaping our understanding of marriage. In verse 31, Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And when you turn to Genesis 2, we get a zoomed-in look at God's purpose for and special relationship with mankind. And as we get that zoomed-in look, we get a picture of marriage. And in that, we find that creation is telling a very compelling story. In creation, we see a few things about marriage. First, we see that marriage is good. In creation, when we look at it, because Paul's bringing it in here in Ephesians 5, we see that marriage is good. Genesis 2, 18 tells us something that isn't good. It says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It wasn't good for Adam to be alone, to not have a match, as he saw throughout creation. There were matches, and he did not have a match. And it was not good for him to be alone. So that, therefore, the institution of marriage at creation is God bringing forth something good. No matter what we want to say about marriage, its creation, its design is good. Secondly, at creation, we see that marriage is not only good, but it is a gift. It wasn't stumbled upon. It was a good gift given. Genesis 2, verse 22, says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The very establishment of this union is one of a gift from God to them both, bringing good. And then thirdly, when we look at creation, we see that uh, it is not only telling us that marriage is good, that marriage is a gift, but it is to glorify God. We see a reason for it and the means for it. 
The reason is found in Genesis 2.23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He's responding in joy, bringing glory to God for his good gift. And then in verse 24, the one that Paul brings into Ephesians 5, we see that that relationship becomes a means by which they glorify God. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This new thing is brought together to a good thing, a gift, to bring glory to God. But then, Paul says that the creation of marriage followed actually a heavenly template. It was based off of something else. That what God designed and put him forth in creation in Genesis 2 was actually built off a template that would come into fruition later in time, and that being the relationship between Jesus and the church. The idea of marriage was based off of something even bigger, something even greater, and that is Jesus' relationship with the church. Now, this does not mean marriage is a one-to-one equal with Jesus and the church, but the nature of marriage is to follow the nature of Jesus' relationship with the church, which is what Paul does in the bulk of this passage. But keep in mind, marriage is a creation gift, so that believer and unbeliever alike can enjoy it and benefit from it. But the gospel helps us see that this gift is given with even greater purpose than we possibly realize. So a long way to get around to say this. For the believer, by means of the gospel, marriage is a gift to be enjoyed to the glory of God and the good of each other. Marriage is a gift to be enjoyed to the glory of God and the good of each other. How would that possible definition and picture change our perspective on marriage and maybe our place and role within it? Marriage is to be enjoyed because God gave it. And the enjoyment of it is found in following that design. And it's to the glory of God that we aim in our marriages. We want all of our life to be to the glory of God, including these incredibly important social relationships that we have. And it's to the good of each other. As we'll see, marriage is not one-sided, but it's about mutual good. It's a mutual gift to be mutually enjoyed. So let's consider that. Enjoying that gift. Enjoying the sweetness of marriage. So here are some thoughts from Paul on how to enjoy the gift of marriage. First, he instructs the wife. He says, to the wife, a call to submit. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The call to submit is part of the outworking of mutual submission that went to the church in verse 21. As you see there in verse 22, the as to the Lord functions very similarly to what you see at the end of verse 21 out of reverence for Christ. This is the wife's living out of her reverence for Christ in her relationship to her husband. 
and she is to submit just similarly. It is mutually but voluntarily and selflessly. It is a purposeful action on the part of the wife. It means she is eager to bring into order and alignment to, to and with her husband. The word for submission often is used to describe sort of the military rank and the structure of things. And so she is taking her life, she's ordering it and aligning it to her husband. And says to her husband. Notice that in verse 22. To your own husband. This isn't a statement about women and men in general. It is an incredibly vulnerable and intimate, special calling within an incredibly vulnerable, intimate, special relationship to your own husband. And then Paul takes a metaphor of the church and its relationship to Christ to ground the call for, his, for the believing wife. Verses 23 and 24. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. We have a picture of a head and a body united together. And this picture isn't solely focused on some issue of authority, but rather on the issue of union which Paul brings in and by bringing in Genesis 2.24. Certainly, when we look at Christ in the church, he has authority over the church. But when Paul draws out the idea of the body, he's taking the focus onto the union of something living, something breathing, something intimate about that relationship. So to the believing wife, how you can enjoy the gift of marriage, to take your life and order it to and align it with your husband. As Paul uses Genesis 2.24, it's leaving your parents or leaving that life in which you were enfolded into this larger immediate family and you are bringing it into this new primary relationship. That for you is a means by which you can enjoy the gift of marriage. And then Paul turns his attention to the husbands. To the husbands, he gives them a call to love. A call to love. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Remember those things, those household codes I was referring to? In Paul's day, they had a lot of details on what to do for the, for the husbands. None of them None of them said to love your wife. Not one. At best, the Greco-Roman codes that surrounded Paul's day and influenced the men that Paul was reaching, at best said, maybe in time you'll come to like your wife. And so Paul says something incredibly radical and upstream to the culture around him. A hard word to these husbands. Love. And he uses a word that means the highest, deepest, most intimate kind of love. Many of you, most of you, or a lot of you may know that Greek language has 
different words for different kinds of love. And Paul uses the one that's the most intimate, intentional, deepest, and highest kind of love. Paul's very clear on what he's saying. Not only is he very clear on what he's saying to men and the kind of love, but he has to say it three times, which all the wives would say, yes and amen, right? Yeah, that's a joke, right? But three times, it's very important. He, he tells them three times to love their wives. He knows he's going upstream against everything that they grew up in, everything that they saw, everything available to them. He knows he's going upstream, but the gospel is sufficient for that. The gospel at work in the lives of people is stronger than the current of the culture around them. So take comfort in that. So he instructs them in this way. And it was really radical. Paul then grounds this call by imploring men to love their wives like Jesus. Verses 26 and 27. Uh, so he says, As Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that he might, she might be holy and without blemish. He gave himself up for her. And then you see the nature of that giving up described in verses 26 and 27. It's the nature of the kind of love that Jesus has for the church. It is sacrificial to bring good to the church. Therefore, that same nature of love should mark the husband being sacrificial to bring good to his wife. I will say what it doesn't mean. It means, husbands, you are not your wife's savior or sanctifier. Jesus is. Husbands, you're not your wife's Lord. Jesus is. Instead of to Lord... What if we thought of the nature of our relationship with our wives more in lines of to serve? If we're following the pattern of Christ, who said himself in Mark 10.45 that he came not to be served, but to serve. Paul is cutting against the grain and into the hearts of these men. And he brings back that union relationship, verses 28 through 30. It says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Second time he's calling them to love. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, and he goes on to quote Genesis Paul brings back the union dynamic that he used with wives and then he applies it to husbands. To say and to imply and to show that the health of the marriage is significantly impacted by the nature of love from the husband. Let me say that again. The health of the marriage is significantly impacted by the nature of love from the husband. So to the believing husband, how can you enjoy the gift of marriage? To sacrificially love your wife in a way that nourishes and cherishes your relationship with her. 
It's a lot. There was a lot going on in Paul's day that made both for the wife and for the husband living that out very difficult. There's a lot that goes on in our day that makes that very difficult. And so the good news is that what God has supplied for us with the Spirit, bringing to bear in our lives the gospel of Christ, bringing about transformation, is greater than the things that make this difficult. The things around us and the world in which we live, the culture in which we swim, and the things within us, our own hearts, our own defensiveness, our own frustrations and feelings of guilt and and incompleteness and, and all of it, we have something greater in us, at work in us, filling us, so that we can embrace the significance of marriage and then enjoy the sweetness of it. Now I want to I want to say something to perhaps a handful of us or many of us in this room that don't quite fit into this dynamic in our stage of life. So to others with us today, to singles, might sit here and read and think or feel or see or have maybe experienced in the past something that makes you feel as if you are somehow less of a Christian because you're not in this relationship because you're not married, that you're somehow relegated to the JV of being a part of a church. Certainly, if you aspire for this kind of gift of marriage to come your way, that's great. But no matter what happens, or when that might happen, aspire to walk filled with the Spirit. Aspire to walk filled with the Spirit. Aspire to to know Jesus and to love Jesus and to follow Jesus and to belong to Jesus' body, the church. Someday, perhaps, maybe that relationship will happen for you, but your primary hope, your primary fulfillment in life is ultimately found first in a saving faith in Christ, not in a human relationship. And married folk around you will tell you Spouses will let each other down. That comes with the territory and being that close to another human being. But Christ does not let down his people. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Some who are single are single because you're widowed. You've experienced a long life of of the joys and struggles of marriage. And those joys and struggles you'd give anything for once again. Your heart aches and you long, and so I would encourage you to seek and find in God the comfort for your heart. He is the God of all comfort and of all grace. He cares tenderly for his people. Find that in him and find that also in the companionship that you can have with others in the body of Christ as you travel out your remaining days following after him. Second group of people may come to mind, may be part of our group here this morning, is to those who are believers and married to those who are either unbelievers or someone who is not wanting 
to follow the Lord in any way. I want to encourage you with something that's hard, I know. But God's design for marriage is best. So ask Him to give you the needed grace to put that best on display in how you love your spouse. Now perhaps your living Jesus-y will win your spouse's heart to Christ, even if that comes decades later. You're not alone. Christ is with you. You're not alone. Follow his best design for your marriage. Seek after him the grace needed to live in a way that puts it on display. Third group of people is to those who are in difficult marriages or have experienced the breakage of a marriage and divorce. To those in difficult marriages, to some, that means you're in a very frustrated and hard season. There might be all kinds of variables that have contributed to that. Maybe these words here will bring timely conviction and encouragement to guide your hearts. I would encourage you, if you're in one of those seasons in which there has been significant drift, significant hardship, significant frustration, I'd encourage you to get mentorship or help. Put some intentionality into caring for it, even if it might seem overwhelming to you. And if you don't even know where to start, you could reach out to married friends and ask, what do, they, what do they do? How have they handled these kinds of seasons? Reach out to an elder or a pastor. Or, or take, take advantage of an opportunity that is actually an incredibly sweet and encouraging time. On Friday after Easter, April 14th, we're going to host another marriage course. I would encourage you to commit seven weeks to going on a guided tour to care for your marriage. And you don't have to be in a hard and frustrated and difficult place to be a part of that. Any condition of your marriage, I would encourage the marriage course. But if you are especially in that kind of a season, I would strongly recommend you to commit and guard and be invested in those seven weeks. See how the Lord might use that time to, to do the needed work for your marriage. There might be some, and I, I certainly don't want to assume there isn't or there couldn't be, not here, but there might be some that are in an unsafe marriage, an unsafe situation. There is help. Whether that help comes from civil authorities or counseling services, depending on the nature of that safety, you are not alone. There are steps to take. And I'm going to ask you to take the biggest step of all, and that is to reach out for help. Don't have to stay in an unsafe situation. There is help to care for. There are some here that are divorced or have experienced divorce. In this passage, this message may have stirred up all kinds of emotions and thoughts, grief, shame, regret, bitterness, resentment, confusion, so forth, maybe all of it, all at once, in your heart. Don't know all of the dynamics of your story or your situation, but I do know this. Divorce is not an unforgivable sin. I do know that God draws near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. 
And so I would hope that in light of God's good gift and design for marriage, in light of the nature and scope of his grace, that you would find comfort in your hearts with the hope knowing that Jesus doesn't bail on his people when their lives get tough. There's a lot there. This was a heavy week. It's a hard passage because relationships are messy and difficult and there are all kinds of experiences, all kinds of stories, all kinds of conditions in which we come to this passage with. And what I want us to be mostly encouraged with is that God supplies what we need for the things that God has given us and has called us to. And it might be clumsy, it might be hard, it might be embarrassing or tricky or difficult to grow in your marriage, but it's not too late for it. Embrace the significance of what God has given us in this gift of marriage. Trust him to do the necessary work in both of your hearts so that you can get to the place where you can enjoy the sweetness of it. Because marriage is a gift, it can be enjoyed. And following God's design and trusting his grace for it, for this gift, is our best hope of enjoying it. And we'll experience it imperfectly, but genuinely. And by God's grace, we will grow at seeing how good it is for us mutually and how it brings him glory. Let's ask him for that. Let's ask him for that help. God, we do pray that you would help us in our hearts, for those of us in here who are married. I certainly pray that no matter what uh, the, the nature and the condition of our marriage might be or how long we have been married, I pray that we would feel all the more encouraged to, to, to trust you and to lean into what you have called us to in this relationship, that we would seek to be uh, mutually good to each other, all to your glory and to the enjoyment of this relationship. For those who are in all kinds of, uh, in, in some of those all kinds of marriages that might be in difficult season or hard season, I pray for your spirit to be at work, bringing about a genuine and mutual turn from that hardness to you and to each other to experience reconciliation and restoration into a, a, a joy-filled season of marriage. God, for those who are in a different stage or season of life, which marriage is not a part of that, we pray that you would do the good work in, in our hearts, that we would know your nearness, your care, your, your love, your grace, your mercy for us in deepening ways, that our companionship with you would deepen and widen and strengthen in our hearts. And God, that we'd be all the more intentional uh, to, to be part of your body, to be part of the lives of others who are following after you. Would you do this work in us, we pray, for your glory, our good, in Christ's name, amen.